from the traditional and ancestral lands of the Wasanich people, bordering on the land of the Lekwungen people. I am Michelle Seeley, and this is Amazing Places. Today I have with me Ed Weeb. He's the scientific assistant at the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic, and I have him on to discuss uh, something that I find interesting and I've relied on for years, the school-based weather station network. Welcome, Ed. Hi, thanks for having me here. Thank you for coming on. So can you tell us about this weather network? Sure. The school-based weather station network started way back in the early 2000s. I was working for Andrew Weaver at UVic as a research associate. So I had studied with him to a master's degree studying climate change and climate modeling. Mm -hmm. And I continued working for him, helping him with his research, supporting the research of his students. And we had been talking on and off about how people think about weather and climate. And this was around the time in the late 90s, early 2000s, when climate change denial really started to become uh, apparent to us as researchers in climate change. I don't think it was obvious to anybody else, really. But we had thought, what is a way we can bring uh, resources or ideas to the public in a little better way than just having them read scientific reports? Mm-hmm. And I had put up a weather station there at our building in UVic just for our curiosity. And we thought that was a resource that we could bring to the community and use that as sort of a hook to get people to learn more about weather and climate and have an opportunity to speak to people about it. So that started in 2002. And then by 2005, Andrew had arranged considerable funding resources. So he had found grants from NSERC, the National Science and Engineering Research Council, who had, and I think still have a program called Promo Science, where they provided money for science promotion in communities. And we used that money to build out our first set of stations, which was on probably about 25 schools in Greater Victoria School District, so School District 61. So we had spent uh, a year or so preparing, negotiating with the school districts, getting principals at schools on board. And we were able to deploy these stations in a pretty short time, a matter of weeks, I think, with their cooperation. And that was really when the network came online first with those first schools. So that was 2005. Interesting. And then since then, Andrew arranged more funding here and there, and I could spend some fraction of my time on this project, so added more and more things to the website. That was The website was something I built and all the back end stuff. So we, uh, we could add more and more detail and information, and we gradually added more and more sites. And then I think by about 2000 and... 17 or so, we kind of reached the maximum sites. And that's around the time when I stopped working for Andrew. And I switched, I got hired in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences. So we had about 150 stations deployed all over Vancouver Island, mostly South Island and along the East Coast, Mm -hmm. but all the way up to Campbell River and into the interior a bit there, Gold River and Tossus, we had mm-hmm. some sites, and out on the west coast, we had a few. So, Tofino, Euclid, and the Nitnat Lake, the First uh-huh. Nations community there on their school, and so on. So, it was really interesting to get this picture of the weather across Vancouver Island and how it varied and, and things were going really well. And my employment with Andrew stopped and I started working for a School of Earth and Ocean Sciences. And part of my job was to carry that weather station project with me into the school. Uh-huh. And 
it's uh, officially supported as about 20 or 25% of my work time is dedicated to that project, which is fantastic. Yes, absolutely. There was also some transitional or bridge funding provided through the Faculty of Science. They provided three years of funding for maintenance and support. And that's sort of where things really started to stabilize. There wasn't a lot of time and money to add new sites. Mm. We had a good range of sites. Mm-hmm. And I was able generally to go out and maintain things on a sort of as needed basis. Basically now a one person project. I don't have the time or resources to, to do like scheduled maintenance on everything. So the project went ahead on this model of when things fail, they fail. And then we try our best. I try my best to fix them. <laughs> so but to that point, and it was going pretty well, pretty stable until, of course, uh, the pandemic started and then. Everything right. has kind of fallen apart lately. But, oh. So you're not able to even access the sites if they do fail? Well, for the first year or so, that was basically not allowed. Mm. At first, we weren't even allowed to travel between South Island and North Island for a right. while. And yes. um, nobody was vaccinated for the first right. year or so, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't dare go for my own safety and for the safety of others. I didn't go to any sites. Then when vaccinations started, I was quite optimistic. And I think I went around and fixed a few things here and there. But it still became clear that since the children weren't vaccinated, that it wasn't a good idea to travel from site Mm -hmm. to site. Yeah. So usually my method of making repairs, because it's so time consuming, would be to plan a a number of repairs on one trip. Mm -hmm. So say I would drive to Nanaimo area and I would fix several things in that area and then come. it would be a whole day and I'd come back. But uh, I just can't. I could not figure out a way to make that reasonable. So at the moment, the project is sort of stable at about 80 to 90 active sites, um, which is about a little more than half of what it should be, which is really disappointing, but also pandemic. So everything's disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, true. So children are now starting to be vaccinated. So I'm thinking once probably in the spring, Mm -hmm. I just have to accept and i guess everybody else does who likes it has to just accept that it's just too fraught with too many little problems and yeah it's very disappointing but because the whole project is sort of run on a minimum cost there's always equipment is pretty good but nothing lasts forever yeah and then adding two years of not being able to go out and do anything right and they're in the sort of the highest point and most vulnerable position Um, aren't they Yeah, so we can talk about that too, but there's several pieces to each site. There's a computer inside the site that reads the data from the station outside and so on. So there's all these different points of failure. Yeah, so I've grown to accept that it is what it is. (laughs) That's the way it is for the time being, maybe early spring. I'm hopeful that by the end of winter, and we'll we'll see at least how things are proceeding. And so I have gone to some schools here and there when principals or teachers have requested ones that are local, mm-hmm. and then I've gone after hours when the kids aren't there anymore. And, and totally fairly, the schools are now basically closed to the public. Right. You, you can't just walk in anymore. So it's always this, and some wanted appointments ahead of time, and so. There's no reasonable way for me on my own to fix the problems. I've tried to post here and there little notices on the site, but it's frustrating for people. I get emails all the time. So (laughs) discouraging. Well, it does show though what a resource it is for for the community. So what is involved? What are the pieces at each site? 
Okay, so each school or each site, mostly their schools, has mm. a weather station outside. So a weather station is a small package of instruments all put together with some electronic. So the weather stations are solar powered, so they don't need any mm. wires to get power from the building. And they talk to a, a device inside with radio communications, so they don't need uh, communications or power wires, which was a big selling point for the schools because um, it's pretty easy for them to put a pole or a mast on the side of the building, or sometimes I could use something that was there already, but for them to run electricity and so on is a much bigger <laughs> ordeal. So that was good. So the weather station measures temperature and humidity, and it has a little shelter. People may be familiar with a picture of a, a sort of a white box with slats to let air in and out of this box. That's the standard weather station equipment enclosure that's been in use for probably 200 years now. <laughs> so you basically shelter the things inside from the sun. You don't want the sun to shine directly on the thermometer because that gives you a reading that isn't accurate. It doesn't tell you the air temperature. It tells you the air temperature plus energy from the sun adding heat. And okay. you don't want that. So you have to shade the instrument, but you want air to flow and you want to keep the rain off of the sensitive bits. Mm -hmm. So there's this little shelter underneath the weather station with, with uh, slats. And then above that is a, a black cone, which collects rainwater. So it's like a funnel that collects the rain. And the funnel directs the rain through a small hole into a little tipping bucket gauge, it's called. So it's like you could picture a teeter-totter with, with, instead of seats, it has little buckets to, or little cups to catch the rainwater. And when one cup fills up, then the teeter-totter tips and the water can drain out and the new cup on the other side is now going to collect. And what, how the rain gauge works is you know how much rain it takes to make one teeter-totter tip. Uh, so that's about a quarter of a millimeter of rain. So we don't actually measure the rain directly. We measure how many times this teeter-totter tips. Ah. So that's our closest measurement is a quarter millimeter of rain, which is not very much. And um, then there's also an anemometer. So typically I have been using what's called a spinning cup anemometer. So that's people will be familiar with this. Uh, usually it's held from above and it has three hemispherical cups that spin around uh, on a vertical axis. And the faster the wind blows, the faster they spin. It's basically counting how many revolutions per minute that is. And they, you know, you calibrate it in a wind tunnel or somewhere to figure that out for wind speed. And those are pretty reliable. Mm. And on top of that is a vane, so a wind vane that points into the direction of the wind, uh, and we can record the compass heading or the compass direction in degrees. Most of the sites also have some small instruments to measure the sky brightness. So basically this, the intensity of the solar power at any moment from the sun. Oh. And some of them have a UV index meter as well. Mm -hmm. I think the UV index meter isn't as interesting or useful and somewhat unreliable in my experience. The solar power <laughs> one is really good. You can see a lot of things about cloudiness and so on. Mm -hmm. Get an estimate of how much energy is coming down from the sun. So that's really useful for a lot of other purposes. Right. Well, certainly I, I think the little cups and the weather vane are the most obvious things that you can see from the ground yeah. outside the school. That's what yeah. I'm usually looking for when I go by a, a school as to whether or not they have one of the weather stations, because that's what I can usually see. When I go by one too, I always look to make sure it's turning because sometimes <laughs> they do uh, seize up and don't turn anymore. But Oh no, <laughs> right. 
So you actually use this information or this School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic uses that information for climate modeling and for climate research, whereas lay people like me usually use them to check on what the wind speed is locally at a, at a distinct place wherever I am or, you know, I, I pick a school closest to me or closest to where my parents are or something so I can see sort of how more how accurately it is rather than, no offense to Environment Canada, but you know they have like four sort of weather stations around, whereas yours is sort of micro modeling what the actual weather is in a particular area of the Lower Island or wherever they are. Yeah, that's exactly right. We had anticipated because we know a bit about weather, and so we we imagined or anticipated that our region, Greater Victoria, would be really interesting to look at in this way with lots of weather stations in different parts of the community rather than the one at the airport and the one downtown and so on. Mm -hmm. As we know from understanding how topography like hills and valleys and nearness, proximity to the ocean or up high in the highlands, we knew that would have big effects on the Mm -hmm. local weather and it would be different than the weather measured say at the airport. So most people in Victoria when they check the forecast, it's mostly, you know, what's happening at the airport or what's anticipated to happen at the airport. But the people who live downtown get about 30% less rain than people who live near the airport do over the course of a year. Uh That's a huge difference. Uh And, you know, you don't see that unless you measure it. And then the other thing we really see a lot in Victoria is that places near the coast, especially the southern coast, but not always, see in summertime a really strong cooling effect from the ocean. We call the the sort of land breeze, sea breeze effect, the sea breeze Uh effect. And that is not something you can get from weather stations at airport or even at Gonzales Hill. Sometimes that's too high up, but Gonzales Hill does show it too. That's in fact the first weather site in the region was on Gonzales there by the coast. And it has a nice long, long record, which is great. More than 100 years, I think. Wow. That is. So right now our project has at our oldest site, we have about 20 years of observations, the site at UVic, which is really fantastic because you can start to see patterns or you can start to use that to understand, you know, when we see an extreme event like the rain we saw in November or through this whole fall, we can look back now 20 years and say, how often has that happened and so on. Now, 20 years isn't really enough to make any conclusions, but it does start to give you an idea of what is unusual and what's expected and so on. And that's that's interesting for a lot of people in the community. Mm-hmm. It's certainly fascinating for us. And I've done lots, some comparison work between the sites on our project and the sites from Environment Canada, and they compare well. They show the same broad patterns and so on. But Great. the other thing that Environment Canada does is they only report hourly averages, or our system reports minute values. So uh-huh. for every hour of Environment Canada, you can actually get 60 values from our project. And that, you know, what good is that, you might ask. But there's a lot of weather phenomena that happen over the span of minutes. So, for example, we sometimes see these cold, a cold front is a great example, passing over site after site after site as it moves across our region. So there is a great record we have of a cold front traveling from the north down the Saanich Peninsula and then over the sites in Victoria. And you can see as the cold air, which is on one side of the front, reaches the weather stations, you can see how they drop in temperature over a a matter of like 10 minutes. 
Mm -hmm. Whole front moving at a 40 kilometers, 30 kilometers per hour south towards UVic. It's really neat to see the, the patterns through this higher resolution network. Right. Well, I've sometimes posted about some sort of interesting thing I've seen, and I noticed that you'll come back on social media with a response of what it is in time-lapse video of showing as something has suddenly moved through. And, and you're right, there is nothing sort of that predicted it necessarily or nothing that's official Environment Canada, but your modeling is able to show exactly what it was that came through through and it wasn't just our imagination there's these really oh, interesting no. weather patterns that exist like a I don't know microclimate is the right word but it, it is it sort of and it comes down like you say through a certain neighborhood even yeah and some of the things happen really quickly and change really quickly so it's just fascinating to have this as a resource to look at those patterns and phenomena a lot mm -hmm. more and I do also have a camera on the building which you were mentioned which points north looks north because otherwise the sun is a pain to get in the uh. camera view so it only looks north. I tried different views, but the north one is sort of the best. Mm -hmm. And you can see a lot of interesting phenomena just by watching cloud movement oh, yeah. and so on. And, you know, when we stand outside and look up at the clouds, we just see, usually we just see, oh, there's cloud. Uh -huh. right? And then we look away and maybe a few minutes later, we look up again and all the clouds are different. Unless you have some experience, you don't know what you're looking at. But if you take a time lapse over the day and shrink the whole day to a matter of a few minutes, you can really see some amazing, interesting phenomena in the, in the movement of air. Or you can tie like this cold front that I was talking about. You can tie the view you have of the front approaching, which is like a wall of cloud approaching from the north. Uh, I can give you a link to a video. To that would be the, great. We can post yeah. that. And it's just really fascinating to see this wall of cloud. So where the cold front approaches, there's a lot of rising air. The cold front tends to push the warmer air up and out of the way as it sort of pushes its way across the landscape. Mm -hmm. And um, that causes a lot of rising. The rising air causes a lot of cloud formation, uh -huh. rain at the front and so on. So uh, yeah, it's really neat to actually see the phenomena that we often learn about in textbooks or uh, otherwise just see sort of cartoon drawings of, oh, this is how it works. But you know, when right. you see it happen, I think that's such a great educational resource. So we use that and we use other things in the project in our in our teaching uh, material a lot. Mm. And I know that others in the community have done that. So that's a lot of fun. It's really interesting. And so it's not just either being used at UVic, it is some of the data actually used in the schools themselves? It, in my experience, when I was able to visit more schools, I would see at some schools that they weren't necessarily aware of the project. So then I would have a chance to talk to them and remind mm. them that it was there. And that's, I think that's because there's so much, often there's so much turnaround in schools with teachers moving from one school to another or principal changing and so on mm -hmm. that they don't they aren't always aware of everything that's you know the history of the project there that's fine so i have an opportunity to talk to them but at some schools they're so keen and interested in it they the teachers who are engaged with that subject and that age will do things like having a wall chart uh, i've seen this many times where the students every day record the temperature and the rain and so on on a wall on a big chart on the wall and they have told me that they use the weather station on their school so it's really local to, to what they're learning about. And at mm -hmm. that age, elementary age, they're learning some basic weather concepts, which is great, but they're also learning mathematical things and um, graphical techniques. Just the idea of plotting numbers on a grid is actually one of their subjects in around grade four or five. So they often are using the weather station for that, which I think is fantastic. Absolutely. The integration of local yeah. knowledge, regular curriculum concepts. Yeah. Really neat. Well, 
think it's such a cool thing. Uh, I just felt that I relied on it for so long that it just, I think I came across the website one night when I was looking for, I think I was looking for local weather information one winter night and happened to just Google something about Weather Victoria and it popped up and I've been a fan ever since because I just found it so useful, you know, that sort of neighborhood by neighborhood being able to tell what the weather's like. And when Environment Canada says, you know, that there's only a, a three kilometer wind or something and I'm, and I can hear it like like just blowing things around outside. I'm able to go check the local school. Oh yes, you know there's gusts up to 28 kilometers an hour, and I'm like, okay, that's more accurate than you know three yeah. kilometers an hour. Yeah. So Environment Canada's forecast models they divide the surface of the Earth into boxes, and their boxes are pretty big. Mm. Uh, they're getting better every year, which is fantastic. But they're still big boxes, and then if you factor in like the effects of hills and valleys, and whether you're close or far from the ocean, and so on, the wind is always if they, if it's a windy day, the wind is always stronger over the ocean because there's less friction there. There's less right. uh, bumps and, and rough surfaces to slow the wind down near the ground. Mm-hmm. So the few sites we have that are out on the water, Trial Island and Race Rocks, for example, are absolutely fantastic resources for when we have a storm event. They give you a better idea of what we might call the true wind, which uh-huh. is the wind that's not affected by the roughness of the trees and the buildings and the in the hills and so that's really cool oh well of course we haven't mentioned the site is called victoriaweather.ca so right <laughs> we should get that in there and, absolutely um, i will also add that every data point that has been collected is available there on that site so keeners can poke around and dig into the observations from a particular site it's a little bit difficult to get minute by minute values for a long time period because it's a bit expensive in terms of the resources I have available to provide, you know, a way to get a huge amount of data all at once. Mm-hmm. Hourly and daily values you can download up to a year at a time, uh, play around with that or look at graphs of them and so on. So, Or if there's a particular day you're interested in, you can see a graph of the different variables for that day and look at the other things. And then some community interest things developed, which were people wanted to see something called growing degree days and heating degree days. Many people have heard of heating degree days. So that's when uh, the temperature is below some threshold, usually 18 Celsius. Uh, You basically just add up the hours of the day that the temperature was lower than that. And it gives you an estimate of how much heat you have to provide in your house or building or whatever. The school district uh, facilities management people who were interested in figuring out how much their heating budget should be or has been and so on were looking. They asked me to provide heating degree days, which was which was easy. And I did that. And then for people growing things in general, not just farmers, they might be interested in this other thing called growing degree days, which is how many, basically how many hours per day are above a critical temperature threshold. And it basically, it gives you a summary of how much potential you have for growing things on a given day. Because plants, it's calibrated to like the sort of minimum temperatures plants need and so on. So people grow things like that. (laughs) So that was added and that's available. There's some animations of temperature patterns and other patterns moving across the region. So there's a there's a page that you can view the the day before's temperature patterns as a two-dimensional map showing different colors for different temperatures. So you can see, for example, in summer, you can really see the sea breeze effect as the as the sun gets higher in the sky during summer and the day in general gets warmer. You can see this cold ocean air push in at the coast in James Bay, for example, downtown Victoria. And, wow. and you can see that it might be 10 degrees Celsius colder down in James Bay than at Uvic, which is only, you know, 10 or so kilometers away. So. It's just really some really fascinating little local level phenomena that absolutely 
And then yeah. finally, I guess I'll add that there have been some nice research studies that have been done, proper formal scientific studies sent to peer-reviewed journals and so on using the data from the network. And there's one paper in that process right now that I collaborated a very little bit on. But one of the really interesting one was this phenomenon called meteor tsunami. So a tsunami is a, a wave disturbance of the ocean that travels very quickly in a long distance and it's usually caused by some event like an earthquake, right, that shifts the ocean floor and moves a lot of water. Well, there's a similar phenomena in the atmosphere where the atmosphere is disturbed and a pressure wave basically travels across. And in some places that can cause, because where the pressure gets lower, sea level below or water level below is allowed to rise. So it actually causes a surface wave in the ocean that travels along with this pressure wave in the atmosphere. And in some lakes, for example, it can cause quite a large, like in Lake Ontario, maybe you can get this large wave that can travel onto beaches and uh, is quite dramatic. Yeah. Wow. So it's like a, an atmospheric phenomenon that can cause a surface water wave that, that travels like a tsunami in the ocean. Um, but anyway, there was this research paper that looked at an event here in the greater Victoria, Vancouver area. And they were able to use data from the weather station network, the pressure data, to uh, to do some research on this particular event in time. I thought it was really cool. Very cool. Yeah, so, so that was one of our goals as well. We didn't know, because we didn't put the stations up following the formal uh, World Meteorological Association rules for citing weather stations. We didn't know what we would end up with. Would it be scientifically interesting or would it just be like an educational resource? But it, it turns out it's doing both jobs really well. Mm -hmm. It's fun oh, to see this happening. Absolutely. And it's helping children learn about weather and science and math. Yeah. Just it's a multifaceted uh, network as far as I'm concerned and super interesting. Like I say, I use it as my own resource. So good, good. Really neat. They're amazing. You're making amazing places with, within neighborhoods and schools. Yeah, I think it's really important for communities and neighborhoods to understand more about what goes on right, right where they are and then compare that to other places. I think that's, uh, I think people, well, of course, people are just generally fascinated with weather, whether for good or ill. Almost nobody can avoid the idea of having to know what the weather's doing. So that's people right. are just in general interested. Yeah, it's a, what the number one conversation starter or conversation commenter amongst yeah. strangers even is talking exactly. about the weather. So. Well, this has been great and, and super interesting, packed so much information into a very short amount of time. Good. I really appreciate it and, and expose one of my favorite little resources. So I really yeah, appreciate thank you. that. That's good. Knowing a Hopefully better Hopefully I'll story. be able to get it back to working order soon, but yes. we just all have to be incredibly patient as we all know now. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So much has just sort of changed our timelines, hasn't it? Yeah. So, so we'll hope for the spring. Best wishes for, uh, for spring upgrades or updates and repairs and all the rest of it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the opportunity. <laughs> That's great. Well, we will post the website and we'll post the name of the project on uh, on our social media pages and uh, and hopefully people, other people will learn even more when they go to that, that resource. Fantastic. Thank you. Super. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us today, Ed. Really appreciate You're it. Welcome. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. This has been another episode of Amazing Places. With gratitude for our guests and listeners, I'm Michelle Seeley. Thanks for listening.